If you have a Bible available, you can turn to the book of Ephesians. When you see a Colson family member involved in the service, you know that it was a last-minute draftee. It's been a full week here at Christ Church, and uh, we are at one of the most electric passages in all of the New Testament this morning. Ephesians 2, verses 11 through 22. Listen carefully to God's Word. Therefore, remember that at one time, you Gentiles in the flesh, called the uncircumcision, by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands, remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ, for he himself is our peace who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments and ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in the place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near, For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure, being joined together, grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him, you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, as we come to your word this morning, we ask that you would enable us by your Spirit to catch a glimpse of everything that you are doing in your work to unite heaven and earth. We ask you to speak for your servants are listening. Amen. It was March of 1974, and there were three Chinese peasants drilling a well. They were in the Shangxi province in the northeastern part of the country, which is extremely dry and dusty. And as they began to dig, they discovered three terracotta soldiers. It was unusual. They were beautiful, buried underneath layers of sand and dust. And these three Chinese peasants, they were holding something beautiful. They knew that it was extremely valuable, but they had no clue what was just in front of them. There was actually an army of 6,000 terracotta soldiers and horsemen lying underneath the ground that had been set there some 2,200 years ago by the first emperor of China. They were part of the monument to him after he died. The peasants, they saw something beautiful, but they had no clue that it was connected to this vast, immeasurable treasure that was one of the greatest archaeological discoveries of the 20th century, scholars say. And friends, the gospel works somewhat like this for us. When we first convert and come to faith in Jesus, we're looking for some relief from guilt and a sense of oppression and a heavy spirit that we often carry. 
We know what it is to be cut off from God, and we have an aching sense that there's something more to life, and we want to connect to that. And we have something real and true in the gospel. But in those first moments of our conversion, we frequently don't know everything that we're connected to, everything that God holds out for us in Jesus. And then as Christians who perhaps have been doing this for a while, it's very easy for us to grow numb. And so for all of us, whether new or whether old in the faith, it is so important for us to read the book of Ephesians carefully. Because in six very short, compact chapters, God gives us a view of everything that he is up to in our world through Jesus Christ. And it is a grand picture, marvelous and wide, deep and profound about what God's grace is doing in our world. And when we arrive in Ephesians 2, verses 11 through 22, we find another aspect of what God is up to in the world. We've seen in chapter 1, verse 10, that God has a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in Christ, things in heaven and things on earth. And really, the rest of the letter is a working out of that union of things in heaven and things on earth. And so when we come to verses 11 through 22 in chapter 2, we are seeing that plan unfold. And this is specifically what God is doing. God is creating a new society, and he's doing so by giving them a common history, a common peace amongst themselves, common privileges that they share, and all of this is constructed on a common foundation. There is so much here about what God is doing. We'll address each of these common things that we share because we are in Christ, and then we'll look at a couple of implications this morning. And so first, let's just discuss the common history that we now share. In any society, that society is held together by a story that that group of people tells themselves. We have these as Americans. And I was struck recently in Cuba by the stories that are told amongst Cubans. Some Cubans tell themselves stories prior to the revolution. The revolution in Cuba, I learned from some of the young Cubans, was called the accident. <laughs> that we had an accident in 1959. But then others who are loyal to the revolution, they tell a story, a history. And they capture this history in different slogans. Driving around the country, there were billboards. And I asked Maria to translate the billboard for me. And it said, see how much we have accomplished together. It was a dense little phrase that captured a story that they wanted to tell to the people of Cuba. See how much we've accomplished together because of our commitments and our values, because of our great he heroes, because of the things we esteem. And friends, it's this way in any society that we tell ourselves a history, not just to recall facts, but actually to propel us into the future. And in Ephesians chapter 2, we find Paul, via the power of the Holy Spirit, doing the same thing, giving us a sense of a shared history, because you have to remember who he's writing to. He's writing to Jews and Gentiles who are suddenly worshiping the same God. And these two groups for centuries had been at war with one another. 
The Jews, for their part, they viewed that there was a fundamental division in humanity. And that division was between Jews and Gentiles. You were in or you were out. The Gentiles, owing to this hatred, responded in kind to the Jews. And there were so many wars on Jewish territory because uh, the nation of Israel sat at the crossroads of the ancient Near East, that the two groups had extreme animosity grow up between them. And what Paul does is he then draws these two groups together by giving them a shared story. And he pulls back into the Old Testament, all the way to the story of Abraham. He reminds the Gentiles who they were, apart from the covenants and blessings of God. And then he reminds the Jews of who they were, and he binds it all together. But this is the way the story worked. In Genesis 12, God sets up a plan to redeem the nations of the earth. He blesses a man named Abram, that Abram would be a blessing to the nations. See, when God singled out Abraham as a Jewish man, it was always intended to be a blessing for the world. Abraham and his descendants struggled in their faithfulness to God, and they then began to misuse the law that was given to them through which they were to be a blessing to the earth. And they began to take that as a sense of privilege, of ethnicity, of a boundary marker between them and the world. Paul reminds these Gentile Christians that they were once part of that group who was cut off from Israel. They were once outside of the covenants. Note what he says about circumcision. That was the sign of the covenant. They were outside of that. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. Very similar to the picture we saw in chapter 2 last week, a bleak prognosis, being cut off and without hope. But verse 13, but now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. And Paul stitches in a verse from Isaiah 57. It's 57 verse 19, in which God promises to bring those who are far off in and those who are near in. And you'll notice what Paul is doing. He turns in verse 17, and he says, and he came, speaking to Christ, and preached peace to you who were far off, and peace to those who were near. And Paul is saying that the Jewish community was in need of reconciliation. They were those who were near. And that the Gentile community was in need of reconciliation. They were those who were far off. And what God is now doing is giving this entire community of Jew and Gentile a new sense of its history that you are bound up together, and now God has completed his plans that he promised in Genesis 12 to make Abraham and his seed a blessing to the nations. And the seed of Abraham is Jesus. And he brings blessing to those who are near and blessings to those who are far. And he reconciles them to God through his body and his offering on the cross. Friends, this is the common story that we are a part of. 
God's magnificent unfolding plan that is mysterious and obscure but has now been made plain. It is a secret that is known to us. This is the history we share in. The second thing that we see is that we now also share in a common peace. You find this is in verses 14 through 17. In the ancient world in which the apostles inhabited at the time of the apostle Paul writing this letter to the church in Ephesus, there was an unprecedented level of unity that had been bought by the Roman Empire. Rome was an empire that was unusual in its strength, and it established something called the Pax Romana, the Peace of Rome. And that is all around the Mediterranean world, there was peace. And the many different nations and ethnicities stretching around from North Africa into the Middle East, all the way back around into Spain and into Great Britain, all of these peoples were together as one under the control of Rome. They held this great empire together by their great armies. It was the threat of violence and intimidation that the Pax Romana was won on. And Paul plays off of these themes because he now says that between these two groups that hated one another, Jew and Gentile, God has won a peace. But it's a very different kind of peace. It's not one that's brokered and negotiated by military strength and intimidation. But rather, look what he says in verse 14. For Christ himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments and ordinances. And he is here referring to a literal wall that had been constructed in the temple in Israel. He uses it as a helpful metaphor. There was a wall that separated the court of the Gentiles from coming into the temple precincts where only those who were Jews or those who had converted to Judaism were allowed to proceed. And he says Jesus has torn that down that he himself is our peace. He has made us both one, has broken down in his flesh this dividing wall. And he's done so, in verse 15, by abolishing the law of commandments and ordinances, that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace. That the one man, Jesus, in offering himself by going down into death, allowing violence to happen to him, establishes the peace for us. That Jew and Gentile alike in their sinfulness have been reconciled to God by the offering of Jesus in their place. And so not only do we have a common history that reaches back into world history, but we have a common peace that we experience now. And it builds up our communal bonds and allows us to share fellowship with one another. During the first year of church planting, it is always very intriguing, the group that you gather. And my church plant that Melissa and I participated in in Washington was no different. It was an interesting ragtag group our first year, where you're white-knuckling it every week, not knowing what to expect. Part of our original core group that started, when we started, was about 40 people. There were three bachelors who were over 40. 
and each of them was unique in his own peculiar way. The church was wonderful to love and to serve these guys, and they had wonderful gifts that began to be expressed. One of them was particularly thorny, and he was a little bit difficult to relate to at times. And we were having an open floor dialogue one night about what our church's mercy ministry was going to be. And he stood up and he said, you know, we're all two the same in here. We need multi, multi, multi. We need multiples of everything. We need old people. We need black people. We need tan people. We need yellow people. We need to become multiples of everything. It was a beautiful, really good vision. And as 10 people gathered in that room planning that night, we only knew how to pray to ask God to make that happen. How was that going to happen? Later that year, I received an email from my friend, and he informed me that he was going to be finding a new church home. This is not that odd or unusual in church planting. It just happens. People come in very idealistic, expecting you to be the next John Calvin. Then they figure out, you're not. (laughs) And so then they move on to the next church plant, perhaps. And so my friend then informed me as to why. He said, you know, there are just not enough people like me. There are not enough people like me in the congregation, so I need to go somewhere else. And this is the thing, though, that the gospel gives us, is that our connection inside of the church community, this one body that God has reconciled us within, is that the most common thing between us is not who we are or what sociological things bind us together. But the most common thing between us is what Christ has made us to be. That is the common thing that you and I and everyone else in this room shares in. What Christ has done to us. Who we are by virtue of Him. And that so often we do descend into that sociological level and strata of life and say, oh, I don't fit in. It's common. It's frequent. But friends, the body of Christ works with a different ethic, that we have peace with one another. Jew and Gentile had nothing in common. And Paul was calling them because of the sacrifice and offering of Jesus and the peace that they now share with him, calling them to live in one body. And this is the second great thing that we share in because of Christ and what God is doing in uniting heaven and earth. Third thing we find here is that we now have common privileges. You find this in verses 18 and 19. For through him, we, and that refers to Jew and Gentile, both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. A bold, remarkable statement that you've been reconciled into God's household, made his son and his daughter. That this is what God has now done to you, and you have access to the Father through the Spirit. And note in verse 18, one of the most magnificent statements of the Trinity in all of the New Testament. For through him, Christ, we both have access in one spirit to the Father. That this is the mysterious work of the great three who is yet one. To give us access through Christ in the spirit to the Father. 
And that is the privilege that we now share. And we are called saints and members, fellow citizens. This is the dignity that God bestows on you. He gives you all of these riches. He extends that to you. But it's not just a label. It's not just a passport. It's something for you to enjoy, for something for you to lavish yourself in and understand what God has done on your behalf, that you have access, free access to Him, that you are not cut off, that you are not without hope. The final thing we see here about what God is doing in uniting heaven and earth is He does so by constructing all of this on a common foundation. Verses 20 and 21. Built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Christ Jesus Himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together, grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In Him, you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. And you note here the foundation. The foundation is the apostles and the prophets. They were those designated by Jesus to be the witnesses of His into that first century world. And they were built on Jesus, the cornerstone. And the image here is of a temple that is being constructed and crafted, and that we are being built into that holy temple. And that holy temple, when it is complete, will have the people from all the nations of the world, and it will fill all the world, and it will be a dwelling place for God by His Spirit. And Christ is the cornerstone. He is the foundation. And then everything that the apostles and the prophets have revealed— Everything that is given to us in the canon of the New Testament, this is what we build upon, is that we don't get to be architects. We don't lay out the blueprints for how it's supposed to go, that we stay true to this foundational statement. We don't get to rewrite the history of Christianity or who Jesus really died for or whether Jesus is the only way. That is all given to us in foundational materials. That's the foundation that we now build on in Jesus. And this is what our God has done for us, is that He is working out our privileges on this common foundation, giving us a common peace in a shared sense of history. Friends, that is a massive amount of material. And so what does it all mean? Where does it land in life, and what are its implications? Because these common gifts we receive in God's new society entail two things that I'd like to explore. First is these common gifts have vertical implications. There is no boasting. You can see what Paul is saying, that everyone is cut off. That not only were the Gentiles who were outside of the covenants, but the Jews themselves needed to be reconciled to God. Even though they had all the favor of God, they had forsaken it that they had nothing to commend themselves to God with. And this is what we saw last week in Ephesians 2 and verse 8. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast that we have nothing to commend ourselves to God with. And because we have nothing, and because we are cut off, it eliminates all boasting. It takes out all sense of privilege, 
All sense of entitlement is destroyed in front of God. It's removed. That we all stand on common ground in front of Him. That we cannot differentiate ourselves. This is the profound truth of the gospel. Is that everything we have from God is a gift in Christ And this is what we've seen throughout the letter of Ephesians thus far, that everything we have is because we are in Christ, in Him, sealed in Him, dressed in Him, made righteous in Him, predestined in Him. It all happens because of Him. And that removes all sense of boasting, all sense of earning, all sense of deserving, because we deserve nothing. It all comes to us as gift. The second implication is that these common gifts also have horizontal implications. Not only does this realign the vertical world about how we relate to God, but it realigns the world around us as well. And you can see here that because of the vertical, because boasting has been removed, because distinctions among men do not exist, there is now no discrimination between people. That has been destroyed. That the, the centuries-long hatred that had existed between Jew and Gentile was removed. Race has no place inside of the church because we are one in Christ, the one new man who has brought the hostility to an end. Sometimes we're fond not just of racial divisions, but of social divisions, more of a class-oriented thing. And this, too, has no place in the church where we would attempt to hold someone else out because they don't belong to our group. And then sometimes we're fond of dividing ourselves by generations, and we say, oh, well, they don't get it. They are the old people. Or those are the young upstarts. And so we divide ourselves according to generations. We are fond of finding all kinds of ways of splitting ourselves up socially. It can be by ethnicity. It can be by other types of demographics. It can be by generational concerns. Friends, at the end of the day, the gospel does away with this. That the way we view one another depends upon only what Christ has done to us. When I was in Washington, I had the privilege of making several close Rwandan friends. They were part of the Anglican Church of Rwanda, which of course in 1994 had witnessed a genocide. In just over 100 days, one million people were mostly hacked to death by machetes. This was the way most of them died. Country was torn apart. There was civil war. Order was restored after that. But then the church was there to try to pick up the pieces, and the church was not perfect. Parts of it had been complicit in the genocide, but now godly Christian leaders were trying to pick up, how do we make these many groups, these two groups of Hutus and Tutsis who hate each other, how do we get them to live together in peace? And these leaders knew that the only answer was the gospel. The government could do certain things, but the only true answer was the one new man in Jesus Christ. And so the leading bishops of the Rwandan Anglican Church, they wouldn't discuss ethnicity 
between Hutu and Tutsi. And when you would ask them about the genocide and the Civil War, they would grieve. They would talk about the sadness and their loss. And then if you ask them about racial concerns today, they would stop talking. They would say, we don't use the label of Hutu and Tutsi. We talk about being in Christ. And it was only later that I had learned that the Tutsi-led governments, and the Tutsis were seen to be in control and dominant, but yet the leading bishop of the Rwandan church was a Hutu, a man who probably felt very vulnerable, and yet he wouldn't talk about it because he says what is important is being in Christ. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, in his book, Life Together, listen carefully to what he says. He says, what determines our brotherhood is what that man is by reason of Christ. Our community with one another consists solely in what Christ has done to both of us. That's the standard of our judgments between each other. What Christ has done to both of us, which is he has reconciled us to God the Father, a work that he alone could do. Friends, this gospel is uniting everything in heaven and on earth. It's making those two places one. It's healing all the divisions that our world has known because of sin. And because of sin, we know many aches and pains, social divisions, theological divisions between us and God. There's brokenness in our relationship to the environment. It is broken in every way. In Ephesians 2, we hear about the healing of Babel, the Tower of Babel. God is now undoing, bringing us together as one, giving us peace through a vertical reconciliation that happens in Jesus Christ. That's our one hope. That is our great privilege as well. And so let's live into all of those privileges and into the unity and peace that God gives us. Let's pray. Father, we do celebrate all that is ours in Jesus. And as we look at this massive panorama of grace in the book of Ephesians, we ask that you would help us to absorb it that all of these common privileges we share in, built upon the foundation who is Jesus, may we know the peace that is ours. Lord, help us to enjoy that and to live out all the implications of the gospel and what it means for us here at Christ Church. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.